We're lucky to have with us Dr. Thomas J. Tobin from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he is joining us to share some of his insights and experiences on IT management and basically what we've been dealing with for the past year. So, Tom, I wanted to ha- give you a moment to introduce yourself and give a, an overview of your experiences, and, the, and then we can talk a little bit more about uh, 2021 and 2020. Thanks a lot, Tyler, for having me on the program. I appreciate you inviting me to talk with you and your listeners. And my name is Tom Tobin. I'm the Program Area Director for Distance Teaching and Learning at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And the short version of that is I teach teachers how to teach. So in terms of IT, I don't actually report up through the IT vertical. At the same time, I am deeply concerned with how people use technology in order to have interactions for students having the interactions with content, students having interactions with one another, interactions with their instructors, their support staff, and with the wider world. So I'm grateful to be having the conversation with you. Well, that's excellent. So one of the things that is on top of everybody's mind is money. And how do you think that 2020 and the pandemic and and changes in education are going to impact budgets and finances uh, going into 2021. We have to go back to a few years prior to the pandemic in order to really understand the impact of budgets. At large public colleges and universities, budgets are uniformly tight. And the reason for that is if you go back to, say, 1980, 1985, most public colleges and universities in the United States had uh, the golden thirds ratio of funding. One third of funding came from federal grants and sources. One third of funding came from state budgets and one third of funding came from tuition. With that in place, there was a good mix of how programs got funded at colleges and universities. And even private institutions saw a similar balance way back if we go, you know, 30, 40 years ago. In the late 1990s, that formula started to shift. And especially with regard to state funding of public higher education institutions, that state funding started to dry up. You saw that there were fewer federal programs that were supporting various ways of students getting into college. So uh, cuts to things like Pell Grants and loan programs. And with the shift away from state support for higher education, of necessity, both public and private institutions have had over the years to shift their income primarily to tuition revenue. So, for example, at uh, University of Wisconsin, where I am, or at Penn in the Penn State system, where my partner is a faculty member, uh, both of those states saw tuition revenue creep up to almost half of their budget allocations, which meant that we had to find students and keep students, which on the surface of things isn't such a bad idea, right? We want to make sure that we're reaching out not just to the 18-year-olds who are graduating from high school, but we're also trying to bring back folks who had some college but never completed. We're trying to bring back adult learners who want to gain new skills for the shifting job market. Those are all wonderful things. At the same time, we were in kind of a competition against one another public and private institutions to 
reach out to the students who were there in our service areas and then to go beyond our service areas. So you saw the rise of very large online only programs. Now, fast forward to today, the budget challenge is that when economic times get bad, the old adage goes, then that's good times for colleges and universities because people go back to school when the economy gets bad. The challenge with the pandemic is the economy got bad and nobody could go back to school. We all had the same challenges. For example, I have been an advocate for lowering barriers to educational access for years and years and years. And my arguments, well, they sometimes fell on deaf ears or they were seen as a niche argument because people were, uh, people were thinking about just the budget in terms of, well, we need so many students coming in and so many students graduating, rather than we need to make college more accessible to a greater number of students. But with the pandemic, everybody's got the same problem, the same issue. It's an access issue. If we can't all come to campus, then we need to have some kind of remote or technological mediation in order to help those interactions to happen. Because of that, we were spending more of our budget on things like COVID-19 testing, quarantining, residence hall shifts, at the same time as many of our sources of income tickets to the football games, as well as tuition, were drying up. So if we're thinking about the budget right now, our budgets have been reduced because of long-standing patterns of budget reductions. And because of the shift to tuition revenue being a greater part of our budgets, that took more of a hit during the pandemic than had the pandemic occurred many years ago. So as we're sitting right now, we can kind of predict that in 2020, all of those patterns are likely to continue even after the pandemic. Yes, we're not going to be paying for COVID-19 tests forever, but at the same time, states are not in a position to be able to step up and increase our funding because of the general economic downturn that has happened to us. So for the next 2021, 22, 23, we can expect tighter budgets and more challenges. I appreciate that. And there were a couple of things that you said there that really had me thinking as well. When the pandemic hit, there were a lot of transitions that had to occur on already strapped budgets. And so a lot of schools were finding things that, that were patching holes in, the, in a sinking ship. So I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on what did they change in order to keep business moving and keep students learning, as well as did that change the expectations of what students are going to expect next year and the year following? What do you think the expectations are going to be moving forward and how are they changing? I, I love the way you're formulating the question because there are two rocks in the middle of the river and there's a little bit of a silver lining here as well. So the, the obstacles that we found out when the pandemic hit were that the vast majority of the courses that were on offer by colleges and universities in the United States and Canada, North America especially, the vast majority of the courses that we offered were face-to-face -face courses. Now, there's been a lot of buzz about online learning, remote learning, uh, time-shifted, asynchronous, blended, hybrid, high-flex, you name it. Until the pandemic hit though, those were options for people who chose 
those modalities. So for example, I've been teaching online courses since 1998. Yes, I helped a community college in Pennsylvania to adopt Blackboard version one back in the day. Listeners, you can't see it, but all the gray hair on my head, I've earned it. So I've been in the online teaching space for a very long time. And it's always been true that my students chose to take courses online rather than face-to-face. There's a number of different reasons. It, it might fit their schedules better. Uh, they might just live far away from campus. There's lots of different ways that online or asynchronous or remote teaching can fit into somebody's learning goals. Now, fast forward into the pandemic, suddenly everyone has the same challenge. The campus is closed, we can't get together. So we had to take hundreds and thousands of instructors, some of whom had never taught in a technology-mediated way before, and get them all to a starting line. We weren't going to make expert online instructors out of everyone in just a couple of months when the pandemic hit in early 2020. What we could do, though, was learn from the experiences that we've all been having over in the online teaching space and recommend technologies, techniques, and processes that serve people well so that they can use interactions with which they're already familiar and focus on those. Now, some of those interactions aren't necessarily the best ways to teach. So I know a number of colleagues who are sort of traditional chalk and talk lecturers. And there's nothing wrong with lecture as long as it doesn't go on for 60 minutes at a time. You know, a, a little bit of a lecture, give some information for 10 minutes, and then give your students an opportunity to interact, to take an action, to practice something, kind of like the interview that we're doing now. Uh, you know, there's pauses, we have dialogue, we have conversation. When the pandemic hit, we all worked very hard to help all of our instructor colleagues, one, get familiar with the technology. In many cases, that was a learning management system, but in some cases it was, they had a website or they were using a vendor product or they were using uh, a social media interface, but some way for them to have some space virtually that allowed them to have the interactions that they wanted to have. So that's that was job number one. And it was a shift that monumentally instructional designers across the industry pulled all nighters in order to make that happen. The second piece that we did, and I think we did this one really well, was to help our colleagues in the instructional space to see what kinds of tools gave them affordances, what kinds of tools allowed them to communicate information to their students, yes, but also to allow them to give students opportunities for practice, help students to connect with one another, help them to address barriers like the fact that most of our students have a smartphone, but not a laptop or a desktop computer at home. My colleagues in the K-12 school district world, they were shipping Chromebooks out to their students, like literally mailing them out because their students didn't have technology dedicated at home. And even if students lived in homes with a laptop or a desktop, often that machine was being used by a parent in order to go to work remotely or to connect in other ways to sort of keep the lights on and, and keep money coming in for the family. In higher education, similar things were happening. 
in fields except for the very hands-on ones, the, uh, the avionics, the nursing folks, the studio art people. They figured out ways to be socially distant and allow students to come in and use the lab environments at campuses. But for everybody else, we had to figure out how do we know who's using what technologies? How do we know what technologies people have at home? And then how can we use those technologies in order to figure out where the affordances are? So that's two out of the three things I think we did really well. Last thing I think we had to do during the pandemic, and this one I don't think we did very well, was to help instructors and students to understand what the flow of a course should be like if they can't get together face to face. And this was a big challenge for lots of colleges and universities. I've, I've worked with a, a number of private and public colleges and universities over the past year. And across every single institution, the one thing that people wish they had been able to do better was to give folks sort of a standard model, if you will, of here are the three important things. So for example, at my institution uh, in March of 2020, we put together an instructional continuity website. It was three pages and it was, here are the six or seven things that you should focus on in order to keep things moving at least well, if not perfectly. Since then, everybody at the university has had their say and added a page and added a page and added a page. And it's now 490 pages. And this is true, not just at my college, uh, but it's true everywhere. Everybody is trying to sort of recreate the wheel and, and make sure that we have got good practices in place that are diverse, equitable, inclusive, and that are, are detailed. And everybody from the CIO's office to the librarians, to the accessibility folks, they all have their say in that documentation. And now it's bigger than any human being could ever read and implement in a career. So our big challenge now is how do we figure out what the essentials are again? If I had to boil it down to just think about your students and getting access to the materials and to you, think about how you assess their work, and then think about how you include them in the conversations that you have. That might be a starting point. And I think as you were asking the question, Tyler, thinking forward into what 2021 can look like, I think that's a good place to start because it's one of the rocks in the river. It's one of the places where we didn't collectively get an opportunity to really define what those essentials are and what are the things that we want to keep even after the emergency is over. And it's gonna be hard to stop thinking about this is an emergency and start thinking about what does normal look like now? And, and I really appreciate that because as you were talking, I'm thinking about um, in my own household, I have several that are K-12 and and two that are, are university. And some of them have really enjoyed an online format and others have really struggled there. I have one that you could provide him a laptop and he just doesn't care. He'd really rather do it on his phone. And then another that needs a very nice laptop in order to survive. But with a lot of it, uh, you know, the struggles can come down to how do you provide some of these resources to students? Um, because it's unrealistic to give everything to everybody. How do you let them know where things are available and things like that? 
And as you talked about it, some of the student perceptions of what they expect have changed. Mm -hmm. What do you think are things that they've gotten a taste of this year that they're going to expect or demand moving forward as far as the how instruction has changed? I want to talk in three different ways about student expectations. One of them is an unrealistic expectation, and two are things that have been long overdue. So the unrealistic expectation is that if I'm a student and I come into college, that I am just going to sit in that seat and you're going to teach me, and then four years later, I'm going to go out and get a job and I'm going to have the skills. One of the challenges that a lot of us face is that we still have an education or achievement gap in the United States, in Canada, in lots of countries, where the education that we get in our K through 12 schooling doesn't adequately prepare us for the level of self-efficacy, motivation, and drive that we're going to need in our college careers. So in K through 12, uh, it's uh, FAPE, F-A-P-E, Free and Appropriate Public Education. And that is a federal right that we all have if we attend public K through 12 schools. And what that means is that our K through 12 teachers are legally required to kind of bend over backwards to make sure that we learn. So uh, Tyler, in your house, your, uh, your children, uh, I imagine they got sick of their, their uh, teachers sort of reminding them about homework and keeping on them and making sure that they understood how to manage their time and, and having lots of reminders and, and that kind of thing. And then you get into college and it's good luck, kid. And you're kind of on your own and you have to know to advocate for yourself or if things aren't going the way that they should be going, you have to know to ask for services. You have to know to connect with your librarians, to connect with your mental health counselors, to connect with your academic counselors the tutoring center, all of those different places. And it's a it, instead of a push model, it becomes a pull model. And so that was even that was true before the pandemic. And now with the remote teaching and remote services that we've established at lots of our colleges and universities, one of the expectations that students have is, oh yeah, colleges and universities are going to sort of, all the services are going to be right there and I have one portal that I go into and I see the stuff I need. And I'm hopeful that that continues. I'm hopeful that we will continue to have multiple channels for getting access to people, to expertise, and to information. And those multiple channels have to be in services, technology, people, and time and planning. So you should be able to talk to your academic advisor just as easily as you should be able to talk to a mental health counselor at your college or your university. Another thing that has changed in the way that students are seeing the interactions that they're having is that it's a little less I sit in the seat and you pour the knowledge into my brain. The, the knock on online courses for years was that students perceived online courses as somehow being easier than face-to-face -face courses because they didn't have the, the time requirement, right? You could take an online course and fit it into your schedule anytime. And anytime turned into never and people would kind of crash out of online courses for a number of different reasons. 
But when we're all doing remote instruction and we're all taking courses remotely, there's been a huge push on the part of instructional designers and instructors these days to help students with executive functioning and time management. So what's one thing that we are all as human beings really bad at? Managing our schedules, right? I don't care if you are the most type A, I have four different calendars and they're all color-coded person. You are probably not the best at figuring out, okay, if I have six months to do this project, where are my milestones? Where should I be doing work to make sure that I'm not doing it all at the last minute? And listeners, if there is one of you out there who's never done a project at the very last second, I really want to meet you because this is the human condition, right? So one of the big challenges that we've always been pushing against is that students come to us underprepared, not in terms of knowledge, but in terms of just having models for, and I'll put air quotes here, how to be a student. So especially for first generation learners, we always talk about them as maybe not having models at home of brothers and sisters or parents who've had the college experience and can share with them, well, this is what you have to do. You have to study, you have to set aside time, you have to go to the office hours for your, your faculty members. But it's not just first generation students who have those challenges, it's all of us. And the more that we can be explicit and detailed about what it's like to be a student. What should you be doing? How should you be spending your time? Where are the resources that you can get at? And that can take the form of instructors talking about it explicitly. That could take the form of software tools that help people with time management uh, or you know, data recommendations or app recommendations and lots of things in between. The pandemic has meant that we have to be much more intentional about how we spend our time away from our formal learning engagements. So colleges and universities went to Zoom or Blackboard Collaborate or BlueJeans or whatever other web, web live meeting technologies you want to talk about. And we moved to those because that was most like the face-to-face -face interactions that many instructors were used to. It was the least distance to walk from face-to-face -face class to, okay, we're going to do this on Zoom. It's actually not the most effective way to do remote teaching. And if you have that live time on a Zoom call reserved for practice and not lecture, reserved for conversation and trying things out and experimentation, it's going to go a lot more smoothly. Student expectation is, I sit there and you teach me. Instructor expectation is, oh, no, you got to do the work. You have to put in the work. And this is true. I mean, Tyler, think about your own life. Um, uh, I'll, I'll ask here, uh, what's one of the hobbies that you really love in your life or practice that you do that has nothing to do with work? In my college days, it was music. I, I played the trumpet. Now it's it's moved a little bit more towards woodworking. So I, I can see that, you know, you have to have the discipline and put in the time in order to excel. And you don't learn it by watching it you learn it by doing it. And I, I think that that may be the big point that you're you're driving at there. I can see from watching my own kids, they're learning in different ways. And so if you have one way of presentation, some will thrive and others are going to flounder. And so in the last year, we found that 
everything's been disrupted and, and there are different ways to teach. And I'm hoping for the sake of my own kids and, and students in general, that some of these stay around when when students return to campus because some are going to come back into a very familiar environment and others are going to need to retain pieces of what we've moved to over the last year and it will help enrich the entire educational experience and that's the third thing and you've put your finger right on it and i have been an advocate for universal design for learning for a long time UDL, Universal Design for Learning, is all about giving people options for how they take in information. And a lot of us are, are familiar with that part of it. This is captions on videos. This is transcripts for your audio podcast. This is putting alternative text when you share an image with somebody. That is something we're all familiar with. And it's actually sort of part of the landscape now. That, that sort of accessibility, yeah, we do that as a matter of course. It's routine for a lot of us. There's other parts to universal design for learning that are equally as powerful and maybe a little newer in practice for some folks. It's also about giving people multiple ways to stay engaged. So with your woodworking practice, why do you keep doing it? It's not because you know your spouse said, I, I want a dresser. It's because you, you want to learn how to do dado joints and you want to learn how to put things together in a more complex way. Uh, you want to do things maybe more simply. You want to do them in a more elegant fashion. But the learning is there because you have a goal and the practice, the journey is actually part of that goal. And in the best college and university courses, that's the same thing. So whether we're talking about art history or biology or culinary arts or nursing, that the learning is there and you have to put in the work, you have to put in the practice, and then you have instructors who are good guides for you. And if you have more than one way that you can get engaged and stay engaged, then you're more likely to choose one that works for you. And the same thing, the third part of universal design for learning is multiple ways to show what you know, to take action to express yourself. And as part of the pandemic response, we put a lot of content into learning management systems, into videos, into all kinds of technology-mediated spaces. And we also gave students options for showing what they know because they can't just sit in a room and do a 50-question multiple-choice test with us. We gave them options. Do a project, create a business plan, uh, make a video of yourself, put the selfie camera on your phone to good use and pretend that you're a news reporter talking about the topic of our course. And when students have those kinds of choices, like you just described with your school students, they tend to thrive better. They tend to stay engaged better. They tend to catch fire a little bit more often. They tend to be more deeply involved and they tend to see the why of the learning. And that's the most important thing that we can do. Strip away the technology, the format, even the content. The only reason that we learn anything, whether we're six years old or we're 60 years old, is we have a reason to learn it. And I think if we're predicting what we can keep in 2021, we can build on the good foundations that the pandemic helped us admittedly through an emergency to put together and have more than one way 
that students can interact with the content that we create, with one another, with instructors, with support staffers, with the wider world. As long as we give them some options, they'll take them. You, you talked about you know students only having one way to go and only some students are good at writing the traditional paper. Only some students really take off when you lecture. If you give at least one more way for those interactions to happen than is happening now, then you're opening things up and helping students to be retained. And this goes back to your very first question. Budgets are tight. It's hard to know what tools to keep and what tools to let go of. It's hard to know how are we going to keep students. One of the biggest problems for colleges and universities today is the freshman cliff. What that means is if I, my college takes in 2,000 freshmen, by the time it's sophomore year, we've probably only still got about 1,400 of them. Where did the other 600 go? The most common reason for people to drop out is money, financially. They can't afford it or they have other demands on their time. They need to earn a living. They need to support their families. But the second most common reason is time. They literally don't have enough time in the day. They literally don't have 20 more minutes for studying, which can be the difference between keeping up and struggling. And if we can give technology mediated ways for students to stick with it, to get engaged, to study, to practice, that can make the difference. So if I, if I had one piece of advice for everybody in IT, it's think about the students whom you serve and think about when and how they connect when they're not in the formal learning spaces that you provide to them. Think about the single father who has to drive back and forth 40 minutes to work every morning and every afternoon. If that person can use his mobile phone and have PDFs read out loud to him through his car's speakers, that's the 20 minutes. Think about the students who live far away from your campus or the students who can't come to campus regularly. How do they engage? When and where do they engage? Provide them with tools that are easy to understand, easy to use, and consistent in their features and functions across all the tools that you can get. And you're going to help with student persistence. More students will be there to take the final exam who were sitting there on day one. With student retention, more students will come back next term to take classes. And with student satisfaction, more students will say, this institution was great and I recommend it to my friends. And those are keeping the lights on tuition dollar budget decisions. I firmly believe that most of the time growth comes from pain. And uh, we have had a very painful year with uh, needing to try out a lot of very uncomfortable things for a lot of institutions. And as we come out the other side of it, I think that it is overall going to be a great wealth of improvement for education, for students, and even for the institution. So I greatly appreciate your input and, and your experience as we've talked a little bit about budgets and how education is, is changing. Thank you very much for joining us. And, and do you have any other parting thoughts? Absolutely, Tyler. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And I'd love to connect with your listeners. You can find me on Twitter at Thomas J. Tobin. 
And my website is just my name, thomasjtobin.com. And I'd love to continue the conversation. If you have ideas, if you'd like to share a story, I've definitely got 20 minutes to hear your story. And I'd love to hear what's going on in your world in IT and in education. So uh, great to be talking with you, Tyler. And I hope that the rest of the series goes well for you too. So thank you All again right. for inviting me. All right. Thank you very much for your time.